1: Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me today's episode is anne from the My Wall Street Analyst team. In today's episode, we take a look at CrowdStrike's earnings for Q4, we dive into Apple's most recent foray into healthcare, we give an update on Salesforce, and we take a look at two companies that have impressed us the most this earnings season. anne how are you? Welcome to another episode of Stock Club, just the two of us today.
2: I know, a rare Stock Club being recorded in our office.
1: Yeah, in our office, Look but in that. different rooms because we still yeah. Haven't
2: <laughs> in still in the lying. and we should and we should say, but both in the attic of the building, which is good. I like how we have to scurry up that tiny set of stairs to get up here. And I'm in the studio, which Emmett, the last time we shot video footage in here, Emmett said we really should stop shooting in there because it looks like we have someone like locked in a closet because it looks so small and dark. But we mm-hmm. can combat those rumors here today. It is not a closet; it's a booth.
1: I think Emma might be giving away too much there. Oh,
2: um, sorry.
1: I had plenty of opportunity to kick off the show with a number of goofs. Uh, Elon Musk making fun of one of his uh, disabled employees and firing him and then walking it back. Yeah. Mm. The finance, or not the finance, the transport minister of Ireland telling people to stop get, taking the bus too much. <laughs> um, but I wanted to, so we're recording this on Wednesday, the 8th of March, which is International Women's Day. So Mm -hmm. I'm gonna try to do an actual genuine one instead, instead of making fun of everything. Um, So I wanted to celebrate Una Kyo. She was the first female stockbroker all the way back in 1925, right here in Dublin as well, only down the road, at the Dublin Stock Exchange. Um, It would take another 42 years to have another female stockbroker. So 1920s Dublin was- (laughs) Cutting edge. Randomly, very uh, very, very ahead of its time. So uh, that is who we're celebrating today. And Elon Musk, you got off lightly.
2: <laughs> we will circle back next week if it continues. Yeah, we have notes. <laughs> we have notes. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I should then say we should move from Elon and, and his disaster to maybe something a bit more positive, a bit more light. Uh, so to kick us off today, Mike, I'm going to hand it off to you to discuss CrowdStrike's earnings. It was a good one. It was a good quarter.
1: It was very strong. Um, So I think look, we'll get through this quick. Um, The CrowdStrike has kind of been one of these high-end performers for a long time in the software Mm -hmm. space. And then last quarter, Q3 of its fiscal 2023, we saw a bit of a slowdown, which scared investors. And it really bounced back here. So uh, we'll get into the numbers really quick. Revenue was up 48%. Uh, year over year. Annual recurring revenue was up 48% as well. Uh, net loss for the quarter was 48 million compared to 42 million for the year before, but non gaap net income was 112 million compared to 70 million last year. Free, class- free cash flow was 210 million for the quarter. This was a 33% free cash flow margin, which wow. is pretty damn good. Yeah. Uh, it added almost 2,000 new subscription customers in the quarter. Its total is now above 23,000. This was 41% growth year over year. The retention figures are off the charts. We had a net dollar retention rate of 125%. So this is a favorite amongst software investors, how -hmm. much money it's making off the old cohort. So 2022's customers in 2023 actually contributed 125% of that figure. And then probably even more impressive was gross retention rate. That was actually at a whopping 98%. So we're losing very few customers here. Uh, plenty of cash and not that much debt on the books about two two billion net cash um, and then pretty strong guidance in terms of revenue growth it's going about high 30 percent for q1 and mid 30 percent for the full fiscal year 2024 um yes. in terms of guidance I think 30. 30-something percent is a bit of a step down, but uh, mm. what's been a common theme for management is that it likely undershoots it a small bit, yeah. so then they can outperform it in the quarters to come. So it's kind of under-promising and over-delivering. Yeah. Good but- few highlights as well to come out. So um, it's been successfully poaching clients from Microsoft. Actually, there's a great, great quote from CEO George Kurtz. He called Microsoft Defender just not good enough, um, which is always (laughs) good to see for your main competitor. And yeah, like overall exemplary report from an exemplary software company, and it's kind of it's kind of one of these companies you see that is maturing while still managing to deliver high growth, high margins. It's not profitable yet, but it's generating boatloads of cash. And like you know, it's not profitable because of the one, I suppose, mark. You would look at it in this business, which is very high stock-based compensation, uh, compensation expenses. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not profitable on paper, but it isn't losing any money either. If that makes sense,
2: yeah, yeah. The adjustment of forecasting that seems to be something we're seeing within the broader market as well. I would say not only software companies, but kind of across the board, companies seem to be rolling things in, being a bit more conservative, so that you know, in forward quarters, they can have that headline of, oh, hey, we, we beat earnings. Not only did we beat earnings, we beat, we beat it by a nice and strong margin. Um, but with such a great report coming out, uh, what was the market's reaction? It is. It
1: was very good this morning. So we're recording this on Wednesday. Um, mm-hmm. They reported last night. It has been a bit volatile since. So it started the day up about 7%. It's only up 2% now. And this isn't that surprising. So while it was a stellar report CrowdStrike has been walking a bit of a tightrope in terms of expectations from Wall Street. So it's carrying a pretty expensive valuation. And this means that anything other than absolutely exemplary is going to get punished. Mm -hmm. Um, On top of that, we saw good performances from the likes of Palo Alto Networks, Fortinet, Okta. So while macro conditions were blamed in Q3 for a bit of a slowdown, they couldn't use that excuse again in Q4. Thankfully, Mm -hmm. they didn't need to. But uh, there was definitely definitely a nice bump in terms of cybersecurity spending on the whole. So CrowdStrike had, again, those expectations lifted. Um, look, we went through the numbers, the guidance. You know, There's a little room for growth there in the guidance. Like, you know, when your mom bought your shoes when you were a kid that were a size too big because you grow into them, <laughs> kind of described that as the analogy. Yeah. Um, but what I think was a real positive, and the market, I think, recognizes this as well, is that CrowdStrike seem to have delivered in the areas they faltered in last quarter, if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. uh, remaining performance obligations. This is essentially revenue that's been contracted but not delivered yet. So, if uh, uh, Citibank pays me a hundred million in, or sorry, a million over three years, but I can't, char- I can't, uh, I can't log the year after and the year after that as revenue yet. Yeah. That- falls under remaining remaining performance obligation, obligations. I say that three times fast. <laughs> um, but that was a bit low last quarter and it's picked right back up to about 20% this quarter. Mm-hmm. And then uh, new client additions as well has rebounded. So all, all across the board, I would personally be very happy with this. I think the market holds CrowdStrike to a higher standard, so we mightn't see it um, today in the stock one potential move some were anticipating i think it's a bit of a long shot was uh seeing some form of share buyback plan so mm-hmm. as i said there's about 2 billion in cash sitting on the sidelines 2 billion net cash sitting in the sidelines about 2.7 bit total and it's making about 200 million a quarter now in free cash flow so they would look to put that to use especially with such high stock based compensation mm-hmm. but no sign of it so maybe that's a a bit of a markdown as well um so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where it's at at the minute.
2: Yeah, the buybacks seem to be also something that we're seeing an awful lot of companies doing. Um, I think we're going to talk about it later, but Salesforce and uh, Meta have both done massive buybacks this year. I think it's um, in many ways, I would say it's it's an attempt to shore up investor sentiment. You know, the market has been pretty punishing of these growth stocks of late. So you know, a great way to keep people on board is a uh, use a bit of that cash.
1: The one thing I would say with buybacks is that they only make sense when the stock is kind of. Depressed in some shape, so with yeah. Salesforce is a perfect example. CrowdStrike is still carrying a very high multiple, mm-hmm. so that might be what's keeping them back. Not totally sure, but I, I, yeah. I I'm not surprised to see a bit of hesitancy there.
2: Okay, and uh, just kind of to wrap it up, I guess. Was there any other stories of note that you saw with the company that came out in this this quarter, or any interesting tidbits for management?
1: Yeah, so I've been covering CrowdStrike for a good bit now through Horizon and. I'm used to seeing kind of all these headlines and awards and accolades, but Mm -hmm. for those who are new to it, it's it's actually amazing how much plaudits the company receives. So Mm -hmm. in the last quarter alone, it was, and excuse the list now, I'm going on a bit of an Emmett rant, but um, (laughs) it was named Frost Sullivan's 2022 Global Company of the Year in Cyber Threat Intelligence. It was ranked number one in IDC's worldwide modern endpoint market shares report. Uh, recognized recognizes the leader in the 2022 Gartner Magic Quadrant for Endpoint Protection platforms. Uh, It received the 2023 SE Labs Award for Best Endpoint Detection and Response, and it also received the 2023 SE Labs Award for Best Product Development. It was named the Threat Intel Vendor of the Year and Asia Pacific Managed Detection and Response Vendor of the Year by Frost & Sullivan. And it was named in uh, Fortune's top 100 places to work. Um, these kind of awards, you, I, they're 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 a two sided coin. I don't think you can place too much importance on them, and then yeah. you can also n- could never place enough importance on them. Do you know what I mean? Like, as mm-hmm. they don't come out of nowhere. There's no smoke without fire, and especially for stuff like uh, Gartner in particular, that's yeah. kind of its own self fulfilling prophecy in terms of B two B and procurement, where. If you see a product that is in the top right corner of Gartner, it makes it a very easy decision for procurement officers to immediately go to that product to buy. So it's kind of yeah. a, an unbelievable sales tactic as well. Um, yeah. Apart from that, it nabbed some top execs from Rival Central 1 and it penned a deal with Dell that will see it protecting mm. its commercial PC. So all Oof. in all, a, a very solid three months. And I'm getting a little hoarse talking about <laughs> it.
2: You're so excited. Um <laughs> yeah. It might be worth saying when it comes to those kind of awards and uh, uh, even you reference Gartner there, which is a resource that I use, particularly when I'm researching companies that – are operating in a space that I might not be able to be an expert on. You know, if you're researching a software company that's working in some vertical that, like, I will never have the opportunity to go in and, uh, you know, test out the software, or I wouldn't be able to kind of fully understand what its use case might be. When it comes to a company like CrowdStrike, which, you know, has, has is a B2B, can sometimes be complicated if you're coming from an outside perspective. Do you maybe rely on those expert opinions a little bit more when it comes to evaluating a company?
1: Absolutely. And that's a perfect way to describe it, like we're not gonna know personally how Kride how Christart works unless you're a CSO or a CTO. But yeah. There's incredibly detailed stuff there all about why this company is head and shoulders above its peers. And as George Kirk said, it is head and shoulders above its peers. So yeah, brilliant business. A little expensive if you are uh looking to invest, maybe maybe spread it out over a couple of months, but um but yeah, great quarter. Yes. Um, then now I'm gonna take a break from <laughs> talking because my <laughs> voice is going. It's justn't great for a podcast. But uh next up we have some news coming out of Apple's camp, and this is very interesting. So yeah. it's come out that the company is making serious progress in its efforts to create a glucose monitor for any mm-hmm. diabetics or those who may be close to them, you'll know how important these devices have become in managing the disease. Um, can you tell us about Apple's Apple's efforts in the space and and how they yeah. came to be? Because it was a kind of it wasn't really a traditional research project, we'll say.
2: No, it's highly, highly secretive. It's known as the E5. It's it's the, a glucose monitoring system Apple's been working on for a while. I think it's over 12 years. Um, and it's believed that the initial idea for the project initiated from Steve Jobs himself. So, you know, you're kind of going back to the absolute origins and foundations of Apple. And um, there was a, por- a report that came out last week that said that this device is nearing a proof of concept stage, which would be a pretty dramatic um step forward uh, for something that has long just been almost rumor. Um, up until several years ago, it, it was actually being developed within a secret, smaller startup that wasn't kept on Apple's books. And, you know, if you were coming from an outside perspective, you might assume that it was an, another company entirely. So um, very, very interesting to hear insiders begin to talk about this. Um, a little bit of backstory on what the device actually would be, unlike the current constant glucose monitors that are on the market, um, this would be a completely pain-free, needle-free option. So um, essentially, Apple wants to use a chip technology known as silicone fo- photoni- photonics uh, and a measurement process called optical absorption spectroscopy. Say so that three times fast. Um, <laughs> that's, essentially, it's much they- better than
1: how I butchered repay- remaining performance operations. <laughs>
2: It's hard, like it. tec- technical terms. Um, essentially, the way that the system would work is quite similar to if you've ever worn like a Garmin or a Fitbit or um, even the Apple Watch itself. You'll know that if it's tracking your pulse um, underneath it, it's like flashing a laser into your into your veins so it can see uh, your veins moving. This would be pretty similar. So it's, it's going to uh, use a laser to emit specific wavelengths of light into the area below the skin where there is interstitial fluid, um, which is the substances that leak out of cap but it is used by uh, constant glucose monitors as well um, to figure out what your blood glucose level is. And then if you're a diabetic, it can help you you know, live your life in a bit more of a monitored state. The big differentiator here is going to be the complete lack of a needle. So the way that uh, a Dexcom would work, which is a, the very famous kind of brand name of a, a constant glucose monitors or some of the other options that are on the market, is that a, a tiny needle sits underneath your skin the entire time you wear it. You wear the device for about two weeks at a time and then you have to swap the needle out. Um, And then that is constantly pinging information either to a reader or in some cases, a connected device like a phone or an Apple Watch. Um, It's pretty... We're in an interesting space now with Apple where it seems from the leaks that we have seen that the device is in a usable state and now they're in the process of making it smaller. So apparently the first iterations of this thing they had were like the size of a tabletop. Huge, huge, huge devices, which obviously if you're trying to be in that, you know, wearable tech connected fitness type of space, that's that's not really an option. As of now, it's said that it's gotten down to about the size of an iPhone and it would be strapped to your bicep. So still a good bit larger than any constant glucose monitors on the market. But they're hoping to make that smaller still. I'm getting, I'm um, getting
1: flashbacks of the Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, size of, the size of a small printer or something. You have to use yeah. like a pint of blood. It's like, we, yeah. we just get this to the size of a phone.
2: I know. Um, so they're hoping to make it even smaller. So it's even less intrusive. Um, and so that's been kind of all the exciting news we have. There is there was a kind of small setback in the fact that this effort for the last several years has been led by a guy named Bill Athas. Uh He passed away unexpectedly in 2022. So now his kind of team is working without him. Uh, but it is he kind of built that team from the ground up. So it is believed that they will continue to push forward. But that is that's kind of where Apple is at the minute.
1: So the treatment of diabetes is big business, especially in the U.S. I think you oh, mentioned yeah. you mentioned Dexcom there. Who else? Uh, Dex Dexcom, obviously for one. Who else mm-hmm. is um, on the chopping block here and ready to get disrupted by Apple?
2: Yeah, it's it's an absolutely massive market. There's good reason that Apple is uh, pursuing it. Um, I would see kind of the first disruption that Apple is targeting here would be the pre-diabetic market, simply because. Apple Solution seems to be the most hands-off, and so it's almost for maybe a more casual user than a type 1 diabetic, per se, that needs quite constant monitoring. Um, as of right now, the global diabetic market is worth about $120 billion, and this market will quadruple in size if we include people who would be pre-diabetic. And just a bit of a definition there, someone who is pre-diabetic is someone who is beginning to show symptoms of diabetes, but they're not fully there yet. They, they would be showing symptoms of type 2 diabetes. Um And when you're in a pre-diabetic stage, you can reverse the progression of diabetes by adapting your lifestyle. And so more and more recently, we've been seeing health insurance companies push people to use CGM monitors, even if they're not diabetic, but they're pre-diabetic, to maybe prevent them from progressing further. So that's a very interesting kind of market expansion that's happening um, right now. CGMs have also been effectively adopted within hospitals for a number of kind of side issues when it comes to uh, blood glucose levels. So Um, One thing that I never knew about is that if you're ever put on steroids for any reason, you know, maybe you have a chest infection or or something like that. It was a big issue during COVID. uh, Steroids can mess with your your blood glucose levels. And so sometimes if you're on a high dose of steroids in a hospital, they will make you wear a CGM. So there's a small market there on top of the gestational diabetes market is also quite large, which is when a pregnant woman gets diabetes just while she is pregnant, goes away afterwards. And again, you know, you might need someone who needs to wear a CGM for a couple of months, but not permanently. So that market is continuing to to kind of blossom um according to insiders apple's real goal as of right now the 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 tech the way they're directing the tech is to create a preventative measure that warns people if they're pre-diabetic um and so it would seem that they're trying to absolutely maximize the market right now. They're tr- they're going for the 4x market. They're not going for the type one and the type two diabetics, people who need proper monitoring. Um, and with current CGM systems, the Dexcoms, the Abbotts, the Medtronic's, um, they're credited with lowering A1C levels by 1.5 percent. And according to the experts that I that I that I will quote, that's the difference between an end stage diabetic and a well controlled diabetic. So it's a really really significant difference. Current CGMs can change the behavior of a diabetic in 90% of cases. Like that's very, very, very significant. And when it comes to a disease like diabetes, it really is a maintenance game. It's a preventative game. This is not a, you know, you go to the doctor once a year thing. The way that you live successfully with diabetes is by being constant and and, and vigilant.
1: Okay, so let's highlight Dexcom there out of the three. I'm doing that because Dexcom's sole focus is around diabetes, the care of it, and especially these glucose monitors like Medtronic and Abbott have... I don't know, like huge businesses beyond just this. So if you're an investor at Dexcom, would you be worried?
2: Yeah, maybe over time I would be. But truthfully, this is all going to be dependent upon Apple's algorithm and the level of sophistication they are pursuing. So just a little bit of background on current CGMs. The way that they effectively become the best in the market is through the algorithm. So that tiny needle that sits under your skin, it's actually not measuring your blood glucose level. It's measuring... The, almost like the liquid in between your individual cells. Like that's how small and precise it's being. It's measuring actually the exact same thing that this apple kind of laser is attempting to measure. But what has to happen is once that measurement is taken, it needs to be run through an algorithm to then get the blood glucose level out on the other side. So then an average diabetic can look and say, okay, I actually know um, what my blood sugar is and I know whether I need to take insulin or whether I need to eat or blah, blah, blah. As of right now, Dexcom has the absolute best algorithm. And I have read probably dozens of reports. I wrote a very detailed first look on Dexcom last year at some point.
1: <laughs> you <on> there. A <laughs> yeah. very detailed It was report. really
2: detailed. It was like six you're pages. saying
1: that like you're traumatized from writing it.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was a bit much. I know much. way
1: more about diabetes than I mean to.
2: Yeah. <laughs> like, I wasn't writing about the Home Depot. I had to go read medical reports. Um, But essentially, Dexcom has the most accurate... Uh, algorithm at this point, which means that it, it allow it's like the closest we can get in the modern day to a to an artificial pancreas. If you pair your Dexcom reader with um, a smart insulin pump, it is almost like a perfect system for you to be as hands off as possible, particularly if you're a type one or a severe type two diabetic. Um, Medtronic is a really interesting case study in this space because they have the least accurate algorithm, and that forces users of their system to constantly be feeding the algorithm new data. So that means that the patient actually has to take a traditional, you know, prick the finger uh, blood strip test, and then they have to plug that data into into the device that's meant to be doing the readings. And for that reason, Medtronic is losing market share year over year. They Medtronic also made a, a pretty. Pretty dastardly mistake when they attempted to make their their diabetes system a, a closed loop. So at one point a couple of years ago they said, hey, if you want to use our CGM and you want to pair it with a smart insulin pump, it has to be our smart insulin pump, which wasn't the best move because there are way more smart insulin pump manufacturers than there are CGM manufacturers, and diabetics will choose a pump based on a number of 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 things and a number of needs, and so they basically excluded themselves from a huge percentage of the market for absolutely no reason. So Medtronic has essentially been pushed out. But in that Matronic example, is a really interesting case study for Apple, which is number 1 is going to be the algorithm. You have like and we have no way of knowing where the Apple algorithm is at the minute. Apparently they have used hundreds if not thousands of people for studies. So it's obviously something that they're working on. But if they're targeting that pre-diabetic market, it's entirely possible that the algorithm just needs to be good enough because if you're targeting someone who you know, will maybe only test their blood sugar once a month to get a general idea or is testing their blood sugar once a week because a doctor asked them to. That is not in the same neighborhood as someone who's using a Dexcom because they're a type one diabetic and they need to take a reading every single hour or before and after every single meal. And so from the way I view it, If Apple goes about this the right way, it's entirely possible that the Dexcom device and this Apple glucose monitor could actually live side by side for a number of years, or at least when Apple's in this ramping up period. Because I highly doubt they're going to come onto the market with this absolutely perfect, like, constant glucose monitor that will completely disrupt Dexcom. I would say for the market that Dexcom currently exists in, which the vast majority of their patients are type 1 diabetics or extreme type 2 diabetics, I would say Dexcom will continue to serve that market for Gosh, at least the next five to seven years, because I don't think Apple's going to come onto the market gung ho saying, "Hey, our Apple Watch is going to take a glucose reading every ten minutes." Maybe that would happen, but that would be quite revolutionary technology. And um, according to the insiders who who um, who spoke last week, the main um, the the main accreditation that Apple's trying to get from the FDA and the conversations that have happened between the U.S. government and Apple are entirely for prevention. It's entirely for this pre-diabetic market. It's not for the diabetic market itself. So, yeah, as of right now, I think if I was a Dexcom shareholder, I wouldn't be completely panicked. However, it does highlight problems with the Dexcom stock that that we have talked about in the past, which is it is not a traditional medical tech company in that it doesn't have 40 verticals. It's not developing devices for any number of conditions. All it does is diabetes. And yeah, it does diabetes really, really well, but Right now we're talking about Apple, but we could have some company show up in two years that has effectively created artificial pancreases that can be put into people tomorrow. And you're going, well, that's the end of Dexacom. And so my main issue always with this stock was the difficult thought of I said, if you held stock in Dexcom, does that mean some small little voice in the back of your head is going, God, I hope they don't cure diabetes? <laughs> because that's the end of the road. Whereas at least if you hold another medical device company, if they cure diabetes, you say, well, it's okay, because they've got devices for 40 other conditions that we're still working on. So yeah, it really does just highlight a fundamental vulnerability in Dexcom. But I would say the device isn't going anywhere in the next five to seven years. I, I would maybe even say like they have an existing collaboration with Apple. So when it comes to what the Dexcom monitor sends data to, they apparently have a great iOS app that a lot of diabetics just use. So there's no reason to say that like a preventative glucose monitor will be available on the Apple Watch. And then, you know, if you need a, a, a high touch solution for a chronic condition that yeah, Dexcom is the natural partner with Apple. Um, but yeah, that's where I see us going right now.
1: Yeah. So what you're saying is seven years time Apple's going to buy Dexcom, is that it? A-
2: I mean, <laughs> you heard I here first. I I wouldn't be surprised. I would say, like, particularly when it comes to medical devices, you have to go through an awful lot of regulation in the U.S. and in the international market. It's probably easier to buy someone who already has that regulation, you know, in the door, particularly when it comes to, like, type 1 diabetes is such a serious condition. I just, I can't see Apple going through all the medical regulation, whereas it's much easier to get a preventative device that the general population, oh, I'll, I'll take my my, my blood glucose every two weeks to just make sure I'm in a, I'm in a healthy range. And, oh, you know what? The last six months have been unusual. Maybe I should call my doctor.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of people see wearables and this kind of constant monitoring as the future of healthcare. Is this, could you see this particular branch, the constant glucose monitoring kind of be an apple stepstone into the industry?
2: Yeah. Well, I think like just in general, this is where medical care is is heading. I think it's partially fueled by the absolute horrible ballooning cost of medicine in the united states but really all over the world more and more of the conversation is going around prevention at home care you know how to it's 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 prevention until you know intervention is needed um and so so yeah stuff like this like if they get in 10 years time if they get the apple watch to get to a point where it could identify oh you might have a heart condition or you might be pre-diabetic or you might have xyz it would exponentially save money down the line because uh, as, as we mentioned at the top like if If you're preventing someone from developing diabetes, you are arguably saving the healthcare system hundreds of thousands of dollars in medicine and medical treatment and and in all these things. And I do think, like, that's where the drug market is heading as well. I mean, we've seen a number of headlines this week about drugs like Ozembic, which are meant to help people who are pre-diabetic lose weight or kind of walk back from that line – I'd say that it's not just the tech market that's looking at this. It's 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 any really any sector that can get a bite out of this is going right. The solution to, to ballooning healthcare costs is is smart, constant at home intervention and 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 this is how we're gonna have to do it. Um, so yeah, I'd say the race right now is to figure out who can make the simplest solution. You know, if, if Apple can make technology that you don't even have to think about, it's in your phone, it's on your Apple Watch, it just kind of inserts itself into your life and nudges you when you need it. I'd like I'd say there's going to be a huge market there.
1: Yeah, I could definitely see it being built around the Apple Watch for sure because I think it's yeah. pretty advanced already what it can track.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, particularly like do the the heart rate stuff is crazy. Apparently it's great at alerting people to I think it can almost do heart attacks. Yeah. And uh, car crashes, that's its big thing, but apparently it also sometimes alerts when you're on a roller coaster. So, you know, (laughs) there's highlights and (laughs) lowlights.
1: So literally ups and downs. Um, (laughs) Okay. Uh
2: Hey,
0: it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part?
1: all right, lads. This is your weekly reminder. If you haven't already, to sign up to our newsletter, Charging and Fearless, it's a free email in which you receive a brand new stock pitch every week. We promise it'll be the most valuable thirty seconds you spend in your inbox. This week's email is carrying the subject line: "Sleeping Software Giant." Very vague um, one this yeah. week. Do you have any more to say, or is that it? Just complete teaser.
2: Yeah, it's a complete. It's a complete teaser. I'm. Uh- I this is actually I think someone wrote into us about this company not too long ago maybe a month ago someone asked us about this so I hope that one user is incredibly <laughs> pleased there and everybody else it'll be a complete surprise
1: I hope I hope it's the same one listener that is listening to us from uh, Kazakhstan
2: I hope we good have, for one, good for them I hope one user from day.
1: Kazakhstan and one from Guatemala so if if either of you listen to it this week lads write into us we want to hear from you <laughs> uh,
2: good. All right, moving on. Then, as we, I, we actually already had a sneak peek about this. I, I mentioned it earlier, um, but we have a question that came in this week from a listener, which was a follow up on uh, Salesforce's blockbuster earnings report, kind of really walking back some 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 doom and gloom that we'd seen from the company a couple quarters ago. Mike, what's the word?
1: Yeah, it's nice to track back. So we did a story about a month ago, maybe five or six weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. Where we reported about the activist activist investors stacking up in Salesforce. So, Elliot Management was the name that always catches some headlines for reasons we've already discussed. But I think at last count there were five activist campaigns now in the company. Is that yep. right? Yep. Yep. I think at five you have to start worrying. Worrying. Are yeah. you the problem? <laughs> you know, you don't want to be the person in the room asking like, "Why is everyone here crazy except me?" Yeah. Um. So yeah, we we actually talked about the reasons why. Uh, why activist investors found Salesforce such an interesting opportunity, but it's worth going over them. So stock fell about 50% for recent all-time highs. It was a very bloated company, especially uh, over the course of the pandemic, 100% overhired. Um, so headcount was out of control. Expenses were getting out of hand. And because of that, it was delivering very poor margins and fell to a valuation well below its own historical average and well below other software peers like Adobe or Intuit, those kind of, stalwarts, will say. Um, these might sound like reasons not to invest. For an activist investor, it's kind of the opposite. It's dollar signs because once you see problems that you can easily fix, there's plenty of potential there for a turnaround. So the most recent quarter, and we get into it between the figures and the comments from management, that turnaround looks to be on the right track already. So revenue, income, margins, all outperformed expectations. This could be a little, little tactical here, as we said, under-promising and over-delivering. And especially in this case, Um, savvy managers always have this habit of getting rid of all the bad news at once Mm -hmm. if that makes sense so when it was all going Pete Tong a few months back they might have said let's drop some poor guidance look it'll get punished even worse but that's fine and then we're already in the weeds and then in three months time when we get this bit turned around we can outperform so, you know, that's a small conspiracy there, but I wouldn't put it past them because it makes a lot of sense just to get rid of all the bad news at once and then almost rebuild from that. Um, on top of that, it also doubled its buyback program from 10 billion to 20 billion. So that's almost uh, 10% of its total market cap, which is nothing to be no. nothing to be underlooked. Um, it got rid of its mergers and acquisitions department, which has spent about 50 billion quid in the last five years. So that's going to be Music to the ears of many activist investors listening to the call. And I think probably the jewel in the crown of this whole call was it's targeting a non-gap operating margin of 30% by the first quarter of next year. So that's kind of really where we can see these efficiencies coming in, the cost being cut and becoming a much leaner organization. Uh, If we take a quick glance at its current price to sales ratio, it's just under 6 Its five-year average was just under nine. So even if we could just get back to that stage, we'd see Mm -hmm. a 50% bump on margin expansion alone. So there's a lot of work to be done, but the stock finds itself as a very interesting position. And there's no doubt there's some very intelligent investors in the Elliott managements, in Dan Loeb and all these activist value points, all these activist companies. There's a reason why they're targeted Salesforce. And I think you know, if you were to follow them, it wouldn't be the worst idea you had today. So yeah, that's yeah. kind of the update on Salesforce.
2: Yeah, it's definitely not activists kind of jumping in a company, stripping it for parts and waiting for it to go bankrupt three years later. It's uh it's it's definitely a case in which, you know, some of those some of the corrections in order to improve that margin are so glaringly obvious. I think we already talked about it, but they're giving Matthew McConaughey ten million dollars a year for <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I can't believe I didn't mention like- <laughs> McConaughey yet. Like, I, what okay, was it, creative,
1: creative uh, consultancy or
2: something? C- yeah, creative services. But then he was also in their Super Bowl commercial. So did he get paid for the Super Bowl commercial on top of the $10 million a year? We don't know.
1: Mm, and yeah, interestingly,
2: that's... Benioff said that he was not a part of that negotiation. He said he had nothing to do with the contract. But he's friends with Matthew McConaughey, so I don't believe that.
1: Mm. Yeah, but like if you're Paul Singer or Jesse Conan coming in from Elliott Management and you see the line item give Matthew <laughs> McConaughey ten million <laughs> right. quid, it's it's pretty easy to cut costs. Like I think they know exactly <laughs> what they're doing.
2: Oh, I wish yeah. I saw I wish I saw those emails coming from Elliott Management. McConaughey, 10 million. Question mark? Question mark.
1: Yeah. But it's so funny as well, because you're in that situation, are you happy or sad? Because you're like, what have I bought into? Or also, oh, there's so much room to improve here.
2: Yeah, but I do think we were in a kind of overall market culture where spending like that was totally fine. Twenty like yeah. end of twenty twenty, beginning of twenty twenty one, there was so much cash flowing around the market. People really did lose their minds. They would spend – like companies are spending their money on any- on anything. And I'm sure that is exactly when Matthew McConaughey got that lovely contract. So, um I, I think all companies are kind of turning inward and, and having their moment of shame or they went, Yeah, we probably uh probably, probably should release that NFT. <laughs> we probably shouldn't have given every member of staff access to a 175 acre retreat. Yes. That, that is very expensive. So, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Only when the tide goes out, do you see who's swimming naked? Huh?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh,
1: Um, let's finish up then on an elevator pitch. So we did a lot of earnings today, so we may as well keep going. Mm -hmm. Um, I just want you to pitch me a business that has impressed this earning season.
2: Yeah, I actually, this is such a great follow-on because the company that I want to talk about who just reported earnings this week had a great earnings because management reeled things in and they were able to turn profitability for the first time ever. And that right now is really all the market wants to see. So if you can pull that off, like that's a pretty great story to give. So the company I want to talk about is C Limited, which is three core businesses. Uh, The first one is Digital Entertainment, which is overseen by its subsidiary, Gare- Garena, uh, Gare- it's e-commerce. Garena, I think. Garena, okay. Its e-commerce segment is Shopee, as well as its digital payments and financial services segment, which is C Money. um All three of this, the, the 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 e-commerce and the financial services, is really like where the meat and potatoes is. The last couple of quarters, unfortunately, digital entertainment has been struggling a little bit. um But that's because a very popular game for them, which is called Free Fire, was banned in India a couple months ago, and so its ability to generate revenue from that region. Was effectively just turned off overnight, and so we are. We have seen revenue pretty consistently drop there. So uh, it was down 32 percent this quarter. That is expected to continue to drop, but it was more than made up for um, in the other segments, which is great to see. Revenue for this quarter was up seven uh, percent year over year, um, which you know should improve as as, as these two. Um, segments continue to expand. They were able to announce this quarter that uh, both Shopee and the payments division will be expanding into Malaysia, which is uh, good to see. Sea Limited was kind of one of those companies that when things were good in uh, 2021 they were going absolutely anywhere they could, so they tried to get into South America there for a while, um, which is a hotly contested market, particularly for e-commerce. I mean, you're coming right up against Mercado Libre, which has been so successful there. Um, So I think they had a period of overexpansion, but I think that's been addressed and now they're saying, no, you know what, we're going to be more careful here consider it only going to countries we feel good about um but really the 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 big story was the fact that total net income for the fourth quarter of 2022 came into at 422 million up from negative 616 million in the same period last year this is the first time the company um has had a positive net income which is a very impressive to see And, and they pulled this off really by um just cutting what they could. They kind of bowed down to investor criticism. Um, a big thing was they absolutely slashed their sales and marketing budgets. Um, they saw a $746 million reduction there. That is insane. That's, you know, three quarters of a, of a billion dollars just gone. Um, if we quote management, it said, recent cost-cutting measures like freezing salaries and employee headcounts have given C-stock um, some much-needed reprieve. Um they obviously would also be facing, you know, the traditional international business macro macroeconomic headwinds and and things like that. But uh, they've been they've been doing well. I was so impressed by this quarter. I mean, they continue to see a little bit of a slowdown in terms of the e commerce stuff. Gross merchandise uh, volume was down a bit, um, but nothing that I can't see them in the long term kind of overcoming. They just have such a strong position in, uh, in in Southeast Asia, and they continue to expand into new markets. And there's just such an opportunity there. And um, gosh, it was just very refreshing to, to have a call where you went, wow, uh, management 100% learned a lesson six months ago and has made the necessary changes. And uh, now the stock and the business looks healthier, way healthier. So yeah, that was that was my pick for this prompt.
1: Mm, yeah. What's really interesting there, I think, is that management, maybe it wasn't even turning around. Maybe it was kind of making hay while the sun shone, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there was low interest rate environment, money was going cheap, let's spend, no one cares about profits right now, let's spend as much as we can to gain market share. And now it would turn it around and we'll concentrate on profitability. Yeah. So it's very impressive to actually do that. I think that's kind yeah. of a blueprint for a lot of these businesses is to gain market share and then turn on the profitability, but to do it that fast yeah. really I, seems I suppose.
2: Uh, that's like the overall goal you know anytime you have to hear someone justify an absolutely insane valuation in a growth stock there was like but guys you don't understand the second it wants to be profitable it'll be profitable it's so shocking to actually see they get pulled off in real time in front of our eyes we're like oh it was true
1: yeah they actually they actually meant what they said
2: yeah
1: yeah very uh, good yeah right. uh, still um, a long way down from all-time highs but no it's ooh, an yeah. impressive quarter
2: yeah, trading at a, at a at a significant discount, but um, I don't. If it was a company that you were interested in, it's you know, if you have a nice diversified portfolio, it's a really great way to get some uh, international exposure because it's operating in such an interesting market. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely uh, one to watch. What is your stock for this week?
1: So I have an interesting one this week. It's a bit of a flyer. Uh, the name is called Samsara. It's the ticker symbol IOT, um, which might give something away as we've seen with the. C3 AI in the past few weeks. Those kind of ticker symbols are doing well right now. Um, But the company is, it specializes in Internet of Things technology, as you can guess, uh, which aids operations and logistics. So fairly high level tech we're talking about here, GPS tracking, fleet management, telematics, that sort of thing. Um, An example of one of its products is this driver coaching service amongst like truck uh, fleets and stuff. It decreased speeding by 58% year over year and accidents by over 50%. So if you can imagine a big trucking company, uh, what that will do for its insurance alone. Mm -hmm. So you can see kind of the effect there. Um, It posted a really strong quarter last week. The stock jumped as much as 19% on Friday. Revenue was up 48%, high gross margins in the 70s. Customers with more than 100K in annual revenue were up 53%. It's unprofitable, unfortunately, but it is a relatively young company and it's growing fast. So we might give it some leniency there and it's improving, improving its operating margin significantly in the past year. So it's guiding for 30% revenue growth in the upcoming year, which is a step down, but remains reasonably aggressive considering how tech has been playing out recently and its cash far outweighs its debt. But I think the main reason why I was so interested in this company is because Stanley Druckenmiller's um, Duquesne Capital Management. It bought almost a million shares in Q4 of last year. And for those who don't know, Druckenmiller is kind of a Wall Street legend. He's got an investing record that's up there with Buffett's, if not the same in terms of longevity. It is there with performance. Mm-hmm. He's uh, George Soros's protege, kind of. And uh, he became famous for a trade in the 90s. He went short against the British pound, and he nearly set the Bank of England on fire. Um so his name carries a lot of weight, and this business kind of seems a bit um maybe out of his wheelhouse, we'll say. So there's lots of good signs there. It's an interesting growth punt if you're so inclined. Um just a word of warning, it's had a huge run-up in the like the last since I think about November of last year. So I think likely right after Druckenmiller bought all his shares, which might be <laughs> a coincidence. So it might be a bit of a hot potato at the minute. If you're interested, maybe some dollar cost averaging. Would be prudent, but yeah, interesting business. Wouldn't mind learning a bit more about it. Nice. Okay, that's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us, leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on, and sign up to Charging Fairness. Anne-Marie, thanks for joining me today. Everyone, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.